Genesis uh, chapter 30, our ongoing series through the Bible's first book. It does continue this morning as we want to look at the entirety of chapter 30 together, all 43 verses. But what I want to do to get us started is just read the first 13 verses. And if you have eyes to see, you'll notice that the first 13 verses help us see what is something of an arms race that's existing between Jacob's two wives, these two sisters, Leah and Rachel, as they are in Gauging in all of these schemes to get the most children possible for their name. And so kids, you want to pay attention to these verses because in the chapter, the names of each child is quite significant. And so if you have your Bible in front of you along the way, it'll be helpful, of course. But you'll even notice, particularly maybe on your page, there's an unusual amount of footnotes that you might have at the bottom. For all these names are indeed important in the Hebrew. But let me get us going by reading the first 13 verses. Pray for our time and then we will begin. So let's hear now as God speaks to us through his word. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel and he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Well, then she said, Here's my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went in to her. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son, and then Rachel said, God has judged me, and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore she called his name Dan." Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. And so she called his name Naphtali. And when Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called his name Gad. And Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we are indeed thankful that you are a God who comes down to us in sovereign grace and mercy. We who do not deserve to hear from you, we who do not deserve to experience your kindness and goodness, can now encounter the truth of our Savior Jesus Christ by your word and spirit. And so we pray that you would indeed this morning send the spirit into our gathering, that we might indeed have minds open to the truth of your word, hearts ready to respond with faith and repentance. We pray that you would use me as your servant to minister the truth of this text, that you might lift all of our eyes to Jesus Christ, that I might preach it as you say I must, with clarity and with boldness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've told a number of you before that Friday at the Stone House we refer to as Family Fun Friday. And the real reason we refer to it as such is by the end of the day's events, we always cap it off with pizza and a movie. And with six kids at home, 
five of whom have a vested interest in the movie that we watch, you might understand that choosing which movie we watch on a Friday night can often be a rather arduous ordeal. That's why generally on Monday we start talking about what movie we're going to watch on the coming Friday. And so several weeks back we were talking about these things and we had finally by Friday afternoon settled on this Pixar film, Monsters University. And as we began to watch the film, one of our children had this struggle in comprehending what was going on because while it's the second Monsters movie, it is an origin story of sorts. It's a prequel to the original title as it goes back in time to help us understand how Mike Wazowski and Sully, these lovable, cute, and cuddly monsters, came to be such close friends and our child couldn't understand the chronology of the whole thing that actually the second movie went back to before uh, the first movie. And you probably don't need me to tell you that we live in an era in which entertainment seems to thrive on origin stories. We live in this sequel-dominated era of film that more than a few of the sequels that we receive are actually prequels because many people want to see the origin stories of their favorite heroes, their heroines, where their famous ability and personality came from. And I tell you that because what we come to today in many ways is the origin story of the 12 tribes of Israel. Certainly if you take it back to chapter 29, verse 31, we get the origin of all of these 12 tribes. And you might know the story that we look into today is no pretty story. It's not terribly compelling in terms of rosy colors that it puts on this chosen family of Yahweh. It actually is much more True to be said, a sad story, a sordid story. It's a story, yet again, that finds Jacob, his tents, housing little more than a soap opera drama in his family. And yet within those very tents, yet again, we see God in sovereign mercy and grace pouring out his blessing on his covenant people. And that really is the simple point of what we want to see in our 43 verses this morning. You know, kids, if you wanted to summarize this text, you could do so by just writing down four words. God keeps blessing Jacob. That's what it's here to tell us. God keeps blessing Jacob. We've seen in recent weeks how, of course, rulers and authorities, they can't thwart God's promise. Not even the deceit of his people can thwart his promise. And once again, we see that not only their scheming can not only thwart, not thwart God's promise, but even the midst of their sinful shortcomings can't stop God's faithfulness to this family. And so I do hope that The text would be a unique encouragement to many of you today because I imagine that some of you watching, listening, or in here with us this morning may feel as though your sins, your failings and shortcomings, of which you might feel as though you have this long history for years and years, decades and decades of failures, and wonder, does that put God's promise to me and my children in danger? And what we see is, no, it doesn't for those truly called and chosen by God's grace. And at the same time, we also see, don't we, that any self-inflicted difficulty you might find yourself in. So often in our lives, we put ourselves in the muck and the mire, and God meets us there. Our text is here to tell us God is present in the midst of whatever self-inflicted difficulty we might find ourselves in. Or in the midst of constant conflict and adversity, we see that with Jacob's family year after year. War between his wives, fighting within his tents. In the midst of such difficulty and adversity, the tempter will want you to wonder aloud, is God really with us? But again, we see God is present 
even with years and years of suffering within the covenant family. And so that's the good news for us this morning. God's sovereign grace to a people who don't deserve it. He keeps blessing this family, the family of Jacob. And it's a text that comes to us in two parts. You'll notice verses 1 through 24, God blesses Jacob with a family. And then verse 25 through 43, the second part of the text, God blesses Jacob with a fortune. So it's Revealing, once again, that God continues to be faithful to his promises to Jacob. Promises we've heard in earlier chapters. Promises regarding progeny, a family, prosperity, a fortune. So where we left off last week, if you don't remember, was at the end of chapter 29. That perhaps is maybe the most sordid affair in Jacob's life. Right? It was under the cover of darkness and the power of much drink. His uncle Laban slipped in the older sister Leah. And Jacob ended up marrying the older sister and not the younger sister Rachel. For whom he had worked for by that point seven years. And they strike a wage, Jacob and Laban together. He says, okay, promise to work another seven years. See out this wedding week with Leah and then I'll, I'll give you Rachel. And so by the end of the chapter, what we find is Jacob loving Rachel, and the language of the text is hating Leah. It's certainly meant to be a comparison, that all of his attention and affection was on Rachel, not Leah. But we saw, if you look back up to verse 31 of chapter 29, God's attention and affection was on Leah. He remembered her, he cared for her, he opened her womb, and then it seems like in rapid succession, she gives Jacob four sons. And that issue of children continues on in our text this morning as we see how God blesses Jacob with a family. Notice verse 1 of chapter 30. When Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I die. Now you need to know the feeling and sense of the Hebrew word here for envy It speaks of one coming essentially to the end of herself in the midst of her envy. Uh, she's come to the end of her rope, we might say, or more particularly to our time. She's ready to say, I've had it. Give me children, or I might as well die. And you might know that Rachel's statement is not just full of envy, it's full of irony. Because children, do you know how Rachel dies? By having children. Now, it would have been much better, wouldn't it? then going to Jacob as as he's the sovereign power over her womb would have been to pray to God, who is, of course, sovereign over the womb. His sovereignty, of course, is something Jacob knows about. Jacob himself seems to come to the end of his relationship, at least patience with Rachel in verse 2. Notice what he cries out in anger. He says, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb. So you see, students, that he's got the right theology, he just delivers it in the wrong way. And I trust you know how common that is to take the right theology and apply it in the wrong way. That you can wield sound doctrine in such a way that it is a weapon that cuts and harms and beats and bruises rather than it being a medicine that heals, food that nourishes. What would have been much better for Jacob too, of course, than crying out in anger to his wife would have been likewise praying to God, taking a page out of his father Isaac's handbook on husbandry. Because you remember chapter 25, when Jacob's mother, Rebekah, was found to be barren, what did Isaac do? Stood before his wife 
and prayed for God to open the womb. But Jacob doesn't do that. He seems to be at the end of himself, done with the chaos, the turmoil, the high-maintenance reality that's in his home. And so what Rachel proceeds to do is take a page from her mother-in-law's handbook on being a wife, which as we were reading this text just last night, one of our kids said when we came to verse 3, wait, I've heard that before. Didn't Sarah do that with Hagar? And so what Rachel's really doing is employing what we might refer to as Hagar's scheme. Look at verse 3, or Sarah's scheme with Hagar at least. Rachel says, here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. Of course, the gap of thousands of years make this text seem altogether repugnant to many modern notions about it. The Bible doesn't give any sort of commentary at this point in the passage on the reality of what Jacob's family is engaging in. What you do need to know is that the ancient world, according to the customs of the time, if a wife was barren, it was legally acceptable and even encouraged for her to take a concubine by which she and her husband might get a child. A concubine functioned as something like a surrogate for the family. And and Rachel's desperate to have children, and so she gives Bilhah to Jacob, and you'll notice in the ensuing verses that two sons come in quick succession, and again, you want to pay attention to their names, because it helps underscore not only the emotions of the individual mother at the moment, but also the strife that continues to plague Jacob's family. So Bilhah conceives and bears a son. You'll see in verse 6, at the end, she calls his name Dan, which sounds like the Hebrew word for judged. So, Rachel said, of course, after the child was born, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. So, maybe it's better even for us to say in verse 6, and I certainly think it's true based on the entirety of the chapter, that Rachel probably was crying out to God for him to allow her to be a mother. We just don't hear those prayers, but God has heard my voice, she said. I've been judged. I've been vindicated. A child has been born, and another child is soon born. You'll notice his name is Naphtali. And look at the, the war that's existing between the sisters, because Naphtali essentially means wrestlings with God in Hebrew. Look at verse 8, what Rachel said when he was born, with mighty wrestlings. I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. Kids, you should think about it here as Rachel's essentially saying, we've been engaged in this wrestling match, Leah and I, and I have won. I remember years ago when I was playing soccer during the season, it seemed as though we spent much of our life in a hotel, that we were very much just kind of living out of the hotel on the road, and one's hotel experience in such circumstances was totally dependent upon the kind of roommate you had on the team. Because everyone passed the time differently in those monotonous hotel hours. You know, I had guys that I roomed with that loved to play video games. They just played video games nonstop. Others just were on their phones nonstop. Some watched movies on their computer nonstop. Some seemingly had the gift of going to sleep at the flick of your fingers, and they just slept away every hour of every waking day. But I did have some friends and roommates that were seemingly addicted, addicted to syndicated television at the time, right? Because this was before streaming television online, allowed you to watch whatever you wanted. And one of the roommates I had one season loved the game show Family Feud. 
It's like every time I came into the room, Family Feud was on. You know, this game show between two families, you know, sparring over wits and knowledge and smarts. And we are totally in an ancient family feud here in Jacob's home. But it's really not a feud, is it, between two families? It's a feud between two sisters. Leah sees what's going on. Verse 9 tells us, she realizes she can't have children. I think the best way to actually take verse 9 based on the entirety of the chapter is Jacob probably is never with her in her bed, which is why she's never bearing children. There's this arms race between the children, and so she employs the same tactic as Rachel. She takes her servant, Zilpah, gives her to Jacob as a wife, and Zilpah, like Bilhah, bears two sons to Jacob. You'll notice in verse 11, the first is named Gad, which essentially means in Hebrew, lucky. Good luck. This is why Leah says, good fortune has come. And the second son, she named Asher, which sounds like the Hebrew word for happy, as verse 13 has Leah saying, happy am I, for women have called me happy. And so, if you're keeping count, students, how many children does Leah have? Six. Four from herself, two from the concubine, from her servant, and Rachel has two. And you can be sure that Rachel's keeping count, because what comes next in a family full of sordid affairs might just be one of the lowest moments. Because one day, young Reuben comes in from the field. Harvest time is going on, and you'll see in verse 14 and following, he has these mandrakes. Now, kids, you need to know something about mandrakes to know what's going on here in Genesis 30. So mandrakes, I doubt you maybe have seen recently. It's a plant very common in that ancient eastern world. They had large, dark green, wrinkled leaves, purple flowers, and sweet-smelling fruits. And they were understood to be an aphrodisiac, a fertility drug of sorts at that time. It's why the word almost means love fruits that people would treat as love charms. And so Rachel sees Reuben coming in with these mandrakes. She is desperate to get pregnant. So she says, hey, Leah, can I have some of your son's mandrakes? Well, Leah's at her own end of the rope moment, isn't she? Look how she erupts in verse 15. Leah says to Rachel, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you also now take away my son's mandrakes? Okay, so she's not going to get him from Leah's just simple congeniality and kindness. So I think what we're meant to see here is, is Rachel moves almost from employing Hagar's scheme to Esau's scheme. Because what she says, notice at the end of verse 15, well then... Jacob may lie with you tonight in exchange for a few of your son's mandrakes. And in the same way that Esau sells his birthright for some beans, here goes Rachel selling her husband for some fruits. It's a sign, if you will, of maybe how low Jacob is in his leadership of this home, that certainly in the first half of our text, he's painted as though he's little more than a stud horse that's good for bearing children or siring children, and that's it. So, Leah, as Jacob is coming in from the field, the text has this urgency. It's as though she grabs him by the cloak and says, you're with me tonight. And Rachel's plan goes horribly backwards, at least from her perspective, because not only does she not get pregnant through the mandrakes, Leah, her arch rival, gets pregnant herself. You'll notice that she bears this child named Issachar in verse 18. 
Issachar, which kind of sounds like the Hebrew for wages, for you'll see what Leah says. God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. Verse 19 through 21 tells us she has two more children, another son named Zebulun, a daughter named Dinah, who's going to show up quite significantly in chapter 34. So imagine hearing this story for the first time, the original audience, the nation of Israel as they're journeying towards the promised land. Certainly the younger children may be hearing it for the first time, this origin story of where all their great historic tribal heads came from. It doesn't seem to be a history that instills in the heart courage, instills in the heart something of great love and affection for it's little more than this family feud that's given us 12 kids or will eventually give us 12 kids because you'll notice in verse 22 evidently after all her scheming is done look what happens with Rachel God remembered Rachel and God listened to her and opened her womb It's hard to know if it's true or not, but I certainly would take this text in such a way as it seems as though precisely when Rachel stops trying to scheme and grab after God's promise, that God's promise finally arrives. And isn't it often that way? That after you've come to the end of your plotting, the end of your planning to try to get God's promise in your own power, it's then that what happens? God finally, after years and years maybe of waiting, God brings his purpose to pass in your life. So she has a son that she calls Jacob, which sounds like the Hebrew for taken away, because she recognizes God's sovereign grace in this. Look at verse 23. She says, God has taken away my reproach. And she even has great faith-filled hope, doesn't she? The end of 24 has her announcing, may the Lord add to me another son. God blesses Jacob with a family. And students, you notice the names are very important, don't you? I hope it indeed lifts your eyes to the true son of Jacob that was going to come. The fulfillment of the promise of offspring whose name would be very important. We even read from it early in our larger catechism. His name would mean he shall save his people from his sins. His name would mean God with us. He would receive the name that is above every name. The name by which all heaven and earth must praise. The only name under which anyone can be saved. The name Jesus Christ. God blesses Jacob with a family. And then as the text continues, he blesses Jacob with a fortune. And we can get through this rather quickly. Notice verse 25 and 26. As soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my home and my country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I served you that I may go for you know the service that I have given you. I think I've often told a number of you pay attention to the pronouns in the biblical text. You know they do matter. You see how kind of self-centered Jacob's request is here. Me, me, I, I, I. But students what I want you to ask is the question of why now? That's what the beginning of verse 25 wants us to ask. Why now, only after Rachel has had Joseph, does Jacob say it's time to leave Laban? It could be he's at the end of his rope with Laban. He just says, it's time for us to go home. I've got everything I want. I've got a chosen child for my chosen wife. I think what's more likely is in that ancient culture, the legal codes of the time would say that when a wife was barren, Still, she was underneath her father's ultimate authority. 
It wasn't until she bore a child that she was fully under the provision and protection of her husband. And so it's now after Rachel, the beloved wife, finally has a child that Jacob says, all right, she's fully under my protection and provision. Let's go home. But Laban, remember, he's this power broker of Haran. He is a good businessman. He knows that Jacob has greatly increased his family business's bottom line. He's not eager to see Jacob go. So if you just glance down, you find Laban again asking Jacob, hey, name your wages. Jacob ever having a scheme on his tip of the tongue. And so he says, all right, here's the deal. Uncle Laban, I will work your sheep. I'll keep serving as your chief shepherd, but here's what you need to give me. Give me all of the striped and spotted goats and sheep, and give me all the black sheep too. So, kids, what you want to think about, all of the abnormal colored sheep. Jacob's saying, those belong to me. And at most in an ancient flock, that would be about 20% of the flock, maybe even closer to 10% of the flock. And Laban gets the rest. Laban's name even means white. So, the white man gets all the white sheep. It's kind of this play on words in Hebrew And Laban knows a good business meal, um, a good business deal. And so he essentially says, all right, good, great. But remember, we referred to him last week as the mob man of Mesopotamia. Look at what he does right after the deal is struck in verse 35 and 36. But that day, Laban removed the male goats that were what? Striped and spotted in the female goats that were speckled and spotted. Everyone that had white on it and every lamb that was black. And he put them in charge of his sons. And he set a distance of three days journey between himself and Jacob. And Jacob pastured the rest of the flock. So there's a lot you could say about verse 35 and 36. But the simple thing that you need to see is Laban once again is showing himself to be deceitful and duplicitous. He's taking away all of these sheep he's just said Jacob can have and separating them such a way where they're not going to mate together and assumedly produce more abnormally colored sheep. So he's kind of left Jacob hanging out to dry. Uh, Jacob proves himself to be a, a master shepherd. You notice what he does in verse 37 through 42 is he takes these sticks. And perhaps maybe in your own Bible reading time, you've come across this part in Genesis 30 and you've thought, what's the deal with the striped sticks? You know, he's pulling this bark evidently off the sticks and then he places the sticks right above the the watering trough because that's not only where the flocks would come to water, they would come there to mate as well. So what's going on with the, the sticks? Well, there was this old myth in the ancient shepherding practices that actually wasn't exclusive to shepherding. It was basically a breeding myth at the time that whenever a vivid sight was put before an animal, that that sight would basically implant itself on an embryo. In other words, as the breeding and mating is happening, if the mother sheep sees this striped stick, well, there's striped sheep that's going to come out. You know, if they saw just a striking white stick, white sheep are going to come out. Oh, you notice that, of course, we know that's not true, but it works. Jacob gets lots of spotted and striped sheep. Not just that, notice what he does, basically throwing duplicity back on Laban. Verse 41, whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock that they might breed before the sticks. But the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So not only is he increasing the number of his flock, he's increasing the strength of his flock and simultaneously increasing the weakness of Laban's flock. 
And it's this bounty, it's this prosperity that gets this conclusion. Notice verse 43. Thus the man, that's Jacob, increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, camels and donkeys. You can circle in your Bible what the ESV renders here as increased greatly. The Hebrew is more literally, he increased very, very. This kind of exponential term. But the verb is actually quite important because Jacob has heard that very verb from the voice of God himself back in chapter 28. That stone staircase dream. Yahweh appeared to Jacob and he said, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad. That's the verb. Increase very, very to the north and south, east and west. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So you see it, don't you? God is not just blessing Jacob with a family. God is blessing Jacob with a fortune. And this is because God promised to give Jacob a family and a fortune. He keeps blessing his chosen, even in the midst of their ongoing sin, such as the glory of God's sovereign grace. Yesterday, I was down at my twin sister's house. We were hanging out with her, with all the kids. And I noticed on one of her bookshelves that she had this title that was written by a well-known preacher and pastor about 10 years ago and it was called a sweet and bitter providence and in that book the author says God gives us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good and I want to leave you as we begin to close with that kind of encouragement from the story of Jacob Because surely you would think by this point in his life, he's looking at his past history, he's looking at his current circumstances, and would see them in such a way to think, these are rather perplexing turns. This is not what I thought was going to happen. I didn't think it was going to turn out this way. I've got two wives, and they can't stand each other. We're soon going to see his children are willing to kill each other. His twin brother is back in the homeland from the minute Jacob steps on the foot on the family property. Esau said to want to murder him. Not just that, he's got an uncle and a father-in-law who's willing and able to step on his neck to advance his own selfish purposes whenever he seems fit. Perplexing turns with this chosen patriarch. But what we see, don't we, is God keeps blessing Jacob. He keeps bringing about his good promises and purposes in Jacob's life because this is the one that he has chosen. So as we close, let us bring out a few things about God's blessing that this text helps us understand more deeply. The first thing is that God blesses faithfully. God blesses faithfully. Kids, that is the simple spiritual truth that the Spirit wants to tattoo on your heart from the book of Genesis. God is faithful to His promise. That is essentially the message of Genesis in one sentence. Over and over, isn't it, telling us, here's God's promise and then here's how God fulfills it. Here's God's covenant word, and then here's how God brings it to pass. He's the faithful God, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow in his constant faithfulness. He blesses faithfully. Number two, he blesses mercifully. Mercifully. Yeah, I mean, we've said this, haven't we, in recent weeks, as we should with, with Jacob. He, he's no savory character, is he? I mean, it's a, it's a long way, and there's only a few short scenes where he comes off in a good light. And yet this is the chosen one. In such a way, it even seems like in certain ways when, when the narrative progresses that he is the one from whom the blessing would indeed come immediately at that time. But of course that's not true. 
But God continues to bless Jacob mercifully. That in spite of all his sin, in spite of all his shortcomings, even through his sins and through his shortcomings, God brings his blessing to pass in Jacob's life. And I do hope that would be an encouragement to some of you. You might look at your life and realize there's nothing I have done to receive God's promise, to earn God's promise, to merit God's kindness. And that's totally true. But it also is the kind of situation that by faith, God loves to pour out His promise upon His people because it's always and only of His grace and mercy. His blessing comes faithfully, mercifully, also abundantly. That's really what the second half of chapter 30 is trying to tell us, this abundance of blessing that falls on Jacob. And we know that these striped sticks weren't really responsible for the striped sheep. Uh, Jacob himself knows that. We're going to see, Lord willing, next week in chapter 31. He recognizes that it's God's mysterious providence that has brought him this immense fortune. And we might not have the exact same promise that Jacob heard, but certainly by faith we are part of Jacob's family and recipients and even the fulfillment of promises made to Jacob, but we have no less an abundance of promises given to us, do we, in the Lord Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 3, verse 19 and 20 says, Now to him who is able to do what? Far more abundantly than all we ask for and think according to the power at work within us, which is the power of Jesus Christ. He blesses faithfully, mercifully, abundantly, And before we get to the fourth one, final one, I just want to insert the word how. How do we get the faithfulness, the mercy, and the abundance? Well, the fourth and final thing to see about God's blessing is he blesses representatively. Look back at verse 27 to see why I say that. Jacob and Laban talking here about the wages Laban might give to Jacob to keep him under his employ. And look at what Laban admits in verse 27. But Laban said to Jacob, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Skip down to verse 30. Jacob himself recognizes this as he says about midway through that sentence, the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. So you see the principle of representation? Laban gets the blessing because of his relationship to Jacob. Laban gets the blessing because of his relationship to to the chosen offspring. We get the blessing through our relationship with Jacob's greater son, Jesus Christ. We get the blessing because of our turning from sin and trusting in Jesus, who is the representative, the only representative for God's people. So how is it then that you might know the showers of faithfulness, mercy, and abundance fall upon you in God's blessing? Only if you stand in Jesus Christ. One has to stand for you. It's your relationship to the offspring of Jacob, the ultimate chosen child, Jesus Christ, that can bring any blessing upon God's people. So the Lord keeps blessing. Today, even, He keeps blessing in mercy and faithfulness and abundance because of His Son, Jesus Christ. If you would but stand next to Him in faith and repentance, know that His blessing will fall upon you in the fullness that Jacob knew it. And what blessings we have, don't we? A poured out spirit into our hearts. Union with Christ. Seeing the King in all His beauty and glory at the end of times. Ransom and redemption from sin, Satan and death. Eternal life promised of everlasting happiness in the Father's presence. He keeps blessing through His Son. Let's pray together.
Father, we ask that you would indeed help us to walk in faith and humility as we want to be found in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our substitute. May the blessings that you continue to promise fall upon us only because we have come to Christ in faith. Let us remain steadfast, hopeful, and faithful in the midst of whatever our present circumstance would be, that we might not scheme and grasp for your promises, Jacob and, and Leah and Rachel so often did, but waiting on your perfect plan to come to pass in your own time. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us stand as we want to sing our hymn of response.